This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to The Source. I'm Jake Tapper, live from Tel Aviv, in for Caitlin Collins. And tonight, Israel is further attempting to defend the massive strike on the largest refugee camp in Gaza, densely populated with civilians. Israel saying it was targeting a top Hamas commander who was, quote, pivotal to the planning and execution of the October 7th terrorist attack on Israel, someone who was, quote, actively coordinating and leading combat activities against Israeli forces. Israel says dozens of other Hamas terrorists were also killed at the Jabalia camp in northern Gaza. The IDF saying they do not know how many civilians were killed. It says Palestinians were notified to leave the area through weeks of leaflets, social media and radio warnings. Here's what a spokesman told my colleague Wolf Blitzer earlier today. This is the tragedy of war, Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been seeing for days, move south. We're doing everything we can to minimize. Uh, I'll tell it, I'll say it again. Sadly, they are hiding themselves within civilian population. One eyewitness telling CNN, quote, it felt like the end of the world, unquote. You can see a giant crater in the ground there in devastation. This comes as the FBI director in the United States warned Congress today that this war has raised the threat of an attack in America, quote, to a whole other level. We'll have much more on that in a moment. But first, I want to get straight to CNN's Nada Bashir, who's live in Jerusalem for us following this Israeli strike on the Gaza refugee camp. Uh, Nada, what more do we know about civilian casualties in this IDF strike? Well, look, Jake, at this stage, they are, the authorities in Gaza are still trying to confirm the extent of the civilian casualties that we have seen as a result of this Israeli airstrike on the Jabalia refugee camp. We've heard from doctors on the ground who have been speaking uh, throughout the day, saying that they have seen hundreds of both dead and injured being brought into hospitals in the area. The scenes that have been described, the videos that have emerged from the aftermath of this attack, of this airstrike, have been horrifying to say the least. We've heard from uh, one doctor at the Indonesian hospital nearby the Jabalia refugee camp who has said that they have had uh, bodies, corpses being brought to the hospital, dismembered and charred, that children have been brought in without their parents, wondering uh, where they are. And of course, at this stage, they are still trying to confirm the extent of the death toll. There are many people still buried beneath the rubble. It is important to note that authorities have said that at least 20 residential buildings in the Jabalia refugee camp were completely destroyed. We've seen the videos of the destruction, huge craters uh, in the ground, buildings completely destroyed, rescue workers uh, working alongside civilians trying to dig through the rubble, hopeful that they will find survivors. But as we know, as we've seen for more than three weeks now in these cases, there are few uh, survivors. And we have heard uh, from Doctors Without Borders, they have condemned this airstrike by the IDF. They have uh, issued a testimony from one of their nurses working 
uh, around the Jabalia refugee camp, saying young children arrived at the hospital with deep wounds and severe burns. They came without their families. Many were screaming and asking for their parents. I stayed with them until we could find a place as the hospital was full with patients. Now, we have seen, of course, and heard from doctors that these hospitals are simply at capacity. We've heard the warnings from the United Nations that hospitals across the Gaza Strip, not just in the north, are, in their words, hanging on by a thread. And we have seen those airstrikes uh, over the last week edging closer and closer towards at least four hospitals uh, in Gaza. So there is significant concern around the humanitarian situation when it comes to Gaza's healthcare sector. They are simply overwhelmed. And following this airstrike on the Jabalia refugee camp, we have seen corpses lined up, shrouded bodies outside the hospitals because there is simply no room left in the morgues. Jake? And the IDF spokesperson uh, held a news briefing a few hours ago attempting to defend the strike, saying that the goal was to kill a top Hamas commander. Um, did the IDF explain why that strike had to be launched now? Well, look, from the outset of this war, Jake, the IDF has said it is targeting Hamas positions inside the Gaza Strip. We heard today they confirmed that they carried out this airstrike. They say they targeted successfully, uh, in their words, a Hamas senior commander. Now, we heard uh, from Lieutenant Colonel uh, Jonathan Conriquez, who spoke earlier, giving a statement saying that this senior Hamas commander was, according to the IDF, uh, orchestrating, leading, planning a uh, active combat against the IDF as that airstrike took place. Uh, that is the explanation that has been given with regards to the timing. Of course, as you mentioned there, the IDF has attempted to defend its actions. They say they are targeting military positions. They are targeting Hamas targets. But as I have seen for more than three weeks now, the civilian toll is immense, to say the least. The IDF says it has warned civilians in northern Gaza to evacuate. We've heard those warnings now uh, for some time. But as we know, according to people on the ground, according to rights groups, according to medical staff at hospitals in northern Gaza, there are many people who cannot evacuate southwards as per the orders, the warnings of the IDF. And of course, as we know, those airstrikes are also continuing in southern Gaza. The safe spaces that have been designated, including UN schools, are simply at capacity and for many families in northern Gaza, they tell us there is nowhere to turn. All right, uh, Nada Bashir, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's uh, bring in right now retired Army General Joseph Hotel, former U.S. CENTCOM commander. He oversaw military operations in the Middle East. Uh, General, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, an IDF spokesperson told Anderson Cooper last hour that the top Hamas commander uh, was under the refugee camp in his bunker complex uh, and that he is confirmed to have been killed. Given how specific that information is, what does that tell you about Israel's intelligence capability below ground? And does that justify, in your view, a strike on a refugee camp? Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. I think what it tells us is that uh, Israel, as I think we've known, has had a has had a, a very good intelligence capability uh, over a number of years. While there was a setback here on 7th of October, uh, they seem to have uh, they seem to be recovering from that. So 
clearly, uh, clearly they have a good understanding of uh, of where the where Hamas is operating from and and are trying to target those locations. Whether or not this is uh, the the value of striking this target uh, was worth the risk uh, to civilians, I think will be something that will have to be determined in the hours and days ahead. Uh, certainly, it doesn't look great. It doesn't help messaging for the Israelis. Uh, but all the details are not in. All the facts are not known. And uh, in I and, and many others look forward to, to hearing that from uh, from the Israeli Defense Forces. A different IDF spokesperson called civilian casualties a tragedy of war. Wolf Blitzer pressed him on that. Take a listen. You knew there were civilians there. You knew there were refugees, all sorts of refugees. But you decided to still drop a bomb on that refugee camp attempting to kill the Hamas commander. By the way, was he killed? I can't confirm yet. There'll be more uh, updated. He, yes, we know that he was killed. Um, about the civilians there, we're doing everything we can to minimize. Uh, I'll tell. I'll say it again. Sadly, they are hiding themselves within civilian population. And again, we are doing this stage by stage. And we're going to go after every one of these terrorists who was involved in that heinous attack on the 7th of October. How does a military make an assessment as to whether civilian casualties are worth the target when it comes to a high value terrorist commander, in this case, somebody responsible uh, for the October 7th attacks, which obviously were so devastating for this country. The, the calculation by Israel, I understand, is the, the attacks were so devastating and so consequential, the government, the military of Israel, Israel, with tremendous public support in Israel, has decided that they cannot allow Hamas to ever do that again. But how, do you make, how does the general make the, con- the calculation these civilian casualties, while regrettable, are worth it because we have to we have to get Hamas. Well, you know, professional militaries like the United States, Israel, many of our all of our partners that we operate with all operate under the law of armed conflict. And that requires that uh, we adhere to certain principles, the military necessity of the target, uh, the distinctiveness of the target, uh, and the proportionality of uh, uh, of the means that are being used with this. And these always have to be uh, put into uh, into careful consideration as we look at uh, look at targets. And of course, uh, the the overriding principle here is to avoid uh, effects on on civilians, and though that can be accomplished in a variety of different ways, as as the Israeli uh, spokesman mentioned. But uh, but it has to be a constant process, and there has to be extraordinary intelligence and surveillance to make sure that you are going to accomplish the military mission without uh, inflicting uh, unnecessary civilian. Uh, casualties on this. You know, the, the determination uh, on whether to accept the risk of, of civilian casualties is one, at least in our system, is often reserved uh, to our civilian leaders. And we go through a very deliberate process for this. I, 
I, I would imagine the, the Israelis uh, are doing the same thing. I, I hope that they are. I think that's what the situation requires. Uh, but certainly, I think this highlights the complexity and the challenge of operating in this uh, extraordinary environment that is Gaza, where you have an enemy operating in a three-dimensional uh, way, uh, above the surface, on the surface, below the surface. You have they're integrated in among the population, in some cases using the population to to cover and protect them. Uh, mm-hmm. So it just highlights the complexity and the challenge of this situation. Obviously, when uh, Hamas, which is the government of Gaza, we should remind our viewers, when they launched the attack on October 7th, they had to have anticipated that the IDF, that the Israeli government would retaliate. Um, in your experience, commanding U.S. forces What is the degree to which um, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, any other terrorist group that U.S. forces were fighting, what is the extent to which they embedded in civilian populations compared to the degree that Hamas does, because Hamas does it quite a bit, to the degree that they actually have, not only according to Israeli intelligence, but U.S. intelligence, command and control centers embedded in actual hospitals. Yeah, I think in this situation, certainly Hamas has had uh, a number of years or decades uh, to him embed among the population in Gaza, intermarrying and and uh, and being woven into the threads of the of the society, the community. They're they're doing everything into this. So they've they've certainly had a lot of opportunity to uh, to get integrated into into the civilian population. We certainly saw this with ISIS. They didn't have as much uh, time to do this. And I, I wouldn't characterize them as a government, although they tried to think of themselves as a government. They didn't really represent the people as I don't don't think Hamas does either, uh, uh, and uh, our operations were really focused against them to, you know, to dislodge them, to destroy the, their ability to hold the uh, uh, the caliphate that they had uh, that they had declared, and uh, and to render them uh, ineffective as a uh, as a military force. And this is what this is what. Uh, uh, what Israel is trying to do as well, and uh, of course, it's 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 so complex by this extraordinary environment that we're uh, that we're seeing in Gaza. General Votel, thank you so much for your time and expertise this evening. We appreciate it. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will return here to Israel on Friday for meetings with members of the Israeli government, and he will make other unannounced stops in the region. His first visit came shortly after the attacks. Three and a half weeks ago, much has happened since then, sometimes a week's worth of news in just a day. So perhaps it's understandable that some people have forgotten just how vicious and shocking the massacre was by the terrorist group Hamas on innocent families. Secretary of State Blinken today testifying today uh, about funding for Israel, arguing that no country, no country in the world, in his view, would tolerate what Israel suffered noting, quote, young people chased down and gunned down at a dance party, children executed in front of their parents, uh, parents executed in front of their children, families in a final embrace burned alive, people beheaded. And then he shared one shocking story of one family from that day. And fair warning, it it is a painful story to hear. A family of four 
a young boy and girl, six and eight years old, and their parents around the breakfast table. The father, his eye gouged out in front of his kids, the mother's breast cut off, the girl's foot amputated, the boy's fingers cut off before they were executed, and then their executioners sat down and had a meal. That's what this society is dealing with. Secretary Blinken then repeated himself that in his view, no nation, no nation would tolerate that while emphasizing that it is imperative to do everything possible to protect civilians. Blinken went on to stress that Hamas, quote, cynically and monstrously hides behind civilians, putting its own fighters and weapons in command centers beneath places such as schools and hospitals. Blinken reiterating his position and the position of the Biden administration that, quote, Israel has not only the right, but the obligation to defend itself and to try to take every possible step to make sure this doesn't happen again, unquote. Back home, very concerning warnings about threats to America since this war broke out. The FBI director describing them as threats on a, on a quote, whole other level, specifically warning about, quote, historic levels of anti-Semitism in the U.S. and Yet another showdown looming within the Republican Party with a new Speaker of the House vowing to separate aid for Israel from Ukraine aid in a standalone bill, one that could be dead on arrival in the Senate. That's ahead. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Breaking tonight, we're learning more about that person in custody in connection with the violent threats against Jewish students at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. The Justice Department says... A 21-year-old junior at Cornell named Patrick Dye was arrested today on a federal criminal complaint and charged with posting threats to kill or injure another using interstate communications. According to the feds, Dye threatened to shoot up a mainly kosher dining hall on campus, among other things. He is expected to make his initial appearance in federal court tomorrow. This coming as the FBI director, Christopher Wray, issued a dire warning telling Congress that the war between Israel and Hamas has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole other level. Here in the United States, our most immediate concern is that violent extremists, individuals or small groups, will draw inspiration from the events in the Middle East to carry out attacks against Americans going about their daily lives. It is a time to be concerned. Uh, We are in a dangerous period. At home and abroad, FBI Director Ray said the risk of violent extremism is higher than at any point since the rise of ISIS. I want to bring in uh, Michael Leiter, the former director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Uh, Michael, good to see you. What about what, what do we know about who these threats are coming from and how did this war between Hamas and Israel exacerbate and fuel the situation? Thanks, Jake. I think uh, Chris Ray's use of words was was very careful today. And what he was really focused on is those that were, in his words, inspired by the conflict. 
And that's important because the FBI and Homeland Security are not principally focused on either Hamas or even Hezbollah based in Lebanon launching some organized attack in the United States. But they do know that this conflict is absolutely setting fire to what was already a rising tide of anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim sentiment in the U.S. And over the past several years, anti-Semitic events, attacks, speech, physical attacks have increased significantly. And again, since October 7th in the Hamas attack into Israel and Israel's response, those threats, those acts of violence have increased, not just here in the United States, but really around the world. So Director Ray says anti-Semitism is reaching historic levels. Take a listen. The reality is that the Jewish community is uniquely, uniquely targeted by pretty much every terrorist organization across the spectrum. And when you look at a a group that makes up 2.4% roughly of the American population, it should be jarring to everyone that that same population accounts for something like 60% of all religious-based hate crimes. Uh, And so they need our help. How does the intelligence community even begin to take on these threats which, as Director Ray himself noted, already existed, but are now on the rise, seemingly left, right, and center when it comes to uh, extremist groups. This is a really hard task for them. And it's not that they haven't had to do this before. We've seen these attacks, whether it was Tree of Life in Pittsburgh or other attacks around the country. But what makes it so hard is the scale of this, especially on social media. So the FBI, working with Homeland Security and state and local law enforcement, really are focused on social media because that's where you first see the indicators of the violent speech. And then the hard part is to figure out who those people are and try to link them to real world people and then to try to predict what speech might turn into action, uh, like what we saw in Cornell and you just reported on. I think that's a very hard step to take. So what I think the FBI is doing and needs to do more of is work extremely closely with communities, both Jewish and Muslim communities across the United States, so they themselves can both keep their eyes out, but also harden their own targets, make sure that they do have proper security, make sure that local police increase security patrols around synagogues and mosques and community centers, because these have been historically and likely will be, again, the places that are most likely to be targeted in the United States. And a lot of these threats are, are obviously anonymous, uh, and they're online, quite a few. And it can be tough to differentiate between a serious situation, somebody who actually will act, and some twit who's just working out whatever issues they already had in, in the comfort of their mom's basement. How worried should communities be if they see something that seems like a threat? How worried should they be that it will actually become physical danger? This is such a hard part of intelligence and law enforcement, especially when it's focused here in the United States, because of course people do have First Amendment speech rights to say really stupid things. They don't have the right to threaten violence. They certainly don't have the right to act on that violence. 
But the volume on social media has gone up so much since October 7th, it's getting increasingly hard for officials to actually track it all down. So I think the advice that Director Ray and others have given is exactly right. If communities see this, they shouldn't take the risk. They should report it right away. Because being able to actually identify those who, as you said, are in the basement and just spewing hate but won't act on it, and knowing who will pick up a gun or use a car or explosives and try to hurt people, that's really, really hard. And that's why we need law enforcement to be tipped off. But we also just need communities to be very aware and make really take that protection theme on even if they don't see anything. They have to be ready for these terrible situations because unfortunately, we do know there's enough of this speech out there it will eventually manifest itself into violence. And given what we see going on in, on, in the ground, um, in Israel and Gaza, I don't think this is going to end anytime soon. Mike Leiter, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Coming up, not only growing anti-Semitism, as Mike just mentioned, but also growing Islamophobia. My next guest writes, American Muslims are now in a painful, familiar place and says the lessons of 9-11 have apparently been forgotten completely. Stay with us. The nation's largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization says it has received nearly 800 complaints of Islamophobic incidents since Hamas's brutal attack against Israel on October 7th. In her latest New York Times op-ed titled, American Muslims are in a painful, familiar place, my next guest writes, quote, it seems the lessons of September 11th have been forgotten from college campuses to places of work. People are facing retribution for expressing support for Palestinians that is being misconstrued as anti-Israel or pro-Hamas, unquote. And joining me now is Rosina Ali, a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. She covers topics such as the war on terror, Islamophobia, and the Middle East. Rosina, thanks for joining us. So you referenced how the Muslim community was treated post 9-11 in the US, and you write the, the surveillance, the targeting, and fear Muslim Americans experienced was tied to what the US was doing abroad. Quote, as the United States invaded first Afghanistan and then Iraq, both wars that wrought devastating civilian casualties and paved the way for political chaos, the public perception of Muslims in America plummeted to new lows, unquote. What do you think are some of the lessons that the US is forgetting about 9-11? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on, Jake. You know, I, I think there are a few things that happened after 9-11. One, there was an increase in violence against Muslims. But two, there was a growing suspicion of Islam itself. And, and the third is that there were government policies that, despite their best intentions, ended up discriminating against Muslims. There was a national registry in 2002. There was widespread FBI surveillance. And, you know, there is what people have been hearing is that there is a clamoring for more of that now. There was a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy, a horrible, horrible incident. Wadi Al-Fayyum, he was stabbed to death on October 14th. Uh, the suspect has been charged with a hate crime for his murder. It's a terrifying example. We know that the murderer listened to a lot of conservative talk radio, right-wing talk radio. Um, I know that you're concerned um, about members of the Muslim community, but not only about them. 
um, but how the administration is handling this. I think one of the big problems, and this goes to, to uh, anti-Semitism as well, is that so much communications right now, whether it's online or talk radio or cable, frankly, certain, a certain channel that I'm thinking of in particular, not this one, um, the incentive structure is for hate. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yes. I will also say, you know, that, so I, I decided to write this piece and I'm coming um, at this as a journalist who's reported on the war on terror and Islamophobia for years. And I should say that the Muslim community is not the same as the Palestinian community. But there is a lot of overlap between these two groups. Um, and the rhetoric about Palestine has had a palatable effect on Muslim Americans. So I completely agree with you. There's a lot of rhetoric around hate, but there's also been a lot of rhetoric that has otherized Palestinians. And that has actually generated broad fear and suspicion of both the Palestinian American community and the Muslim American community. Yeah, and what the that horrible act, the guy that murdered the little boy in Chicago, all that crazy rhetoric about the day of rage, he was convinced he had to act because there was so much ignorance and so much nonsense out there. And again, the, the incentive structure for hate was out there and, and in a feeble mind that can really be very powerful. Absolutely. And I think it really speaks to the need for more nuanced voices, for different voices, for, um, you know, more nuanced reporting and uh, across the board in media, but also, you know, just kind of the rhetoric that's coming out from policymakers, too. I mean, in my interviews with people, the thing that they kept telling me over and over again is that they feel isolated. Um, they feel isolated from the broader American community, but also because they're not necessarily seeing a level of understanding or outreach from politicians um, or from this White House. Rosina Ali, thank you so much for coming on uh, tonight. Let's have you on more. Good to see you. Thank you so much. Today on Capitol Hill, the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense uh, pa uh, pressed a divided Congress to urgently pass not only requested aid for Israel, but requested aid for Ukraine and to do so combined. But the new Speaker of the House, Republican uh, Mike Johnson, now teeing up a showdown with the Democratic-controlled Senate, uh, leaving help for these two American allies uncertain. We're going to talk about that next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, divisions in Congress are putting future aid to Israel at risk. The new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, is working towards a vote on a standalone aid package for Israel. 
Later this week, worth $14.3 billion, it would be paid for with funding cuts to the IRS, a top target for many Republicans, but it's what is being left out of Speaker Johnson's bill that makes it a non-starter for Senate Democrats and also some Senate Republicans, and that is additional aid for Ukraine. Here to discuss the political battle is Jamal Simmons, a former communications director to Vice President Harris, and Scott Jennings, former senior advisor to Mitch McConnell. Uh, Scott, even if this bill passes in the House, Senate Democrats, along with your old boss, Mitch McConnell, have basically said it's dead on arrival in the Senate. Um, is Speaker Johnson wasting his time here? What's the end game? Well, from the perspective of it's his first big thing to do as the new speaker. So if you considered it like he's trying to do a team building exercise and try to get the Republicans together on something, even if it's just for messaging purposes, I guess it's not a, a useless exercise. But your point is correct. It's, it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate because I suspect Schumer wouldn't put something on the floor that his own party doesn't support. And I, I think uh, President Biden has even said he would veto that. So uh, I think it's a starting position for Johnson, but the ending position here is a deal has to be cut. And there's a heck of a lot of Republicans who want it all. Israel, Ukraine, replenish American supplies, uh, and also secure the border. And, uh, and I, I suspect that's where we'll wind up, but I'm not surprised this is where Johnson started uh, because it's what a lot of his conference wants him to do. Jamal, even if the House were to ultimately buckle and include some Ukraine aid with the Israel aid, it's possible they could keep the IRS cuts. What then? Would Democrats have to have to consider the IRS cuts? You know, Jake, um, before coming in here tonight, I spent about an hour with my kids doing trick-or-treating, right? And then I spent another bunch of minutes with them explaining why they can't have all the candy tonight before they go to bed. One of the tough parts about being a leader is getting the people in your caucus to understand your friends, allies, followers that they can't have all the they can't have all the candy even though they just won. That is the challenge for Speaker Johnson now. He's got to sort of explain to them as a statesman what's important to do. And it's not just about the, you know, small politics of getting elected speaker. This is about the security and the future of the nation, our allies and our opponents who are looking to see whether or not we're going to stand up against them. So as for the IRS, I do think that President Biden has already said very clearly he's not going to uh, accept the package that uh, Speaker Johnson put up today. They had a statement of, administ of administration policy tonight. I think we're going to see a big fight or we're going to see a fight from the White House on this one. Scott, in the Senate, Republicans are divided about leaving Ukraine funding out. Listen to what we heard today. They should be dealt with together. Uh, we ought to separate. Not acceptable to abandon Ukraine. Uh, Speaker Johnson has been clear. He is going to not put Ukraine aid together with uh, aid for Israel. Um, and I completely agree with him. How should uh, Leader McConnell be handling these divisions in his own party? Well, of course, he's not setting the agenda. It'll be Chuck Schumer who, who decides what goes on to the floor. And even though Republicans may be divided, there's a strong bipartisan majority in the Senate to do everything, to help Ukraine, to help Israel, uh, and maybe even to uh, get some money down to the border, which is in sore need of, uh, of some uh, uh, attention down there. So when you look at it from that perspective, I think McConnell's position is, I don't know why we can't do, do it all. We're America. We're a big country. We can help our friends and help ourselves. Uh, there'll be some Republicans who don't want to do that. I think there's more of them in the House than in the Senate. Uh, but he's made quite clear uh, he wants it all. Border security, Ukraine, Israel, and, and some of the Ukraine, obviously, is to replenish our own supplies. And so 
I don't see him, Jake, wavering uh, from that position, although I do think they are watching the House vote on the Israel-only bill very closely. If that thing were to, you know, fail narrowly or pass narrowly, I don't think it would change Democrats' minds. Uh, but if it were to jailbreak and, and a bunch of Democrats supported that, uh, I could see that possibly shifting the, the political dynamic in the Senate, but I find it unlikely. Jamal, Democrats are dealing with their own rifts as well. Uh, Congresswoman uh, Cori Bush is facing criticism after accusing Israel of engaging in an ethnic cleansing campaign. Uh, Democratic Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries responded to her comment uh, on CNN today saying, quote, Israel is not conducting an ethnic cleansing campaign. Israel is not engaged in genocide, unquote. Uh, what do you make uh, of the tensions and divisions inside the Democratic caucus? You know, there are real tensions and divisions inside the caucus, just like there are tensions and divisions inside the country. But the majority of Democrats, the majority of Democrats and the um, elected Democrats in the House, obviously the White House, the Senate, are for supporting Israel and for making sure that Israel is going to do what it takes to protect itself. Now, at the same time, I think we saw this from Secretary Blinken today, they want to make sure Israel is following international law, they're uh, protecting civilians as much as possible. So it is possible, and this is a very important point for I think a lot of Democrats who are feeling queasy about this to, to make, that you can go after Hamas and talk about Hamas, that does not mean that you are against Palestinians. At the same time, you, so Democrats have to begin to sort of make the point very clearly about who it is that's being targeted. Jamal Simmons and Scott Jennings, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Up next, Donald Trump Jr. expected to take the stand tomorrow at his father's civil fraud trial. He'll be followed by two of his siblings and eventually by Donald Trump himself. What to expect from the Trumps in the scramble to save their business empire? Stay with us. Donald Trump Jr. is expected to take the stand tomorrow, the first of the former president's adult children to testify in the civil fraud trial against the Trump Organization. Over the next seven days, Don Jr., Eric Trump, Donald Trump himself, and Ivanka Trump could all be pressed on inflated financial statements that the company allegedly used to obtain more favorable loans. The case could determine the future of Trump's New York businesses. Joining us now, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Ellie, um, first, do the Trump children have to testify? They do, Jake. If this was a criminal case, a prosecutor can never force a defendant to testify. But because this is a civil case, the plaintiff here, the New York State Attorney General, can issue a subpoena, which is mandatory, which requires a defendant, in this case, Eric Trump's a defendant, Donald Trump Jr. is a defendant, to testify. Their only other option, though, Jake, is they can take the fifth. They can invoke the Fifth Amendment and refuse to testify. But if they do that under New York state law, the judge can consider that against them. The judge can essentially say, I'm going to assume the worst about what your testimony would have done. So there's risk either way here. So they take the fifth. The judge just assumes that they have incriminated themselves to all sorts of crimes. Exactly. That's the way it could work under New York state law. It's up to the judge. He can say, I assume that your testimony would have been bad for you here in this civil case. But the risk of testifying, in my view, is even greater, Jake, because if they take the stand, anything they do say can be used against, against them in any future criminal prosecution. Now, yes, various prosecutors have looked at this case and declined to charge it criminally. But the worry from their point of view is 
prosecutors can always revisit that and hear something perhaps in testimony and say, wait, let's reopen this. And to me, the biggest risk they're facing here is the potential of some sort of criminal liability. What are prosecutors hoping to learn from Eric and from Don Jr., both of whom worked at the Trump organization? So with all the drama and personalities that are sort of coming in and out of this courtroom, the core issue here in this lawsuit is, did the Trump organization intentionally overinflate the value of their assets and use those overinflated numbers to get loans and to get other benefits that they were not entitled to? And so when we're looking at what is the substance of the testimony going to be, the AG's office, who are the plaintiffs here, are going to allege you, the Trump children, you were in on this. You intentionally overstated the value in order to help your business. And I suspect their testimony is going to be, no, we did not. There is some subjectivity in the value of these assets, and there's some sort of inherent value in the brand name here. Now, the judge has already rejected that in part. He's already found that the inflations here were so vast that they cannot be justified. But that's going to be the battleground when the members of the Trump family take the stand. So I'm told there's kind of a different situation with Ivanka Trump and her testimony. Why is that? So she's trying to resist having to testify because she says she was correctly, she has said, I was dismissed out of this case as a defendant. She got herself removed from this case because the allegations relating to her are too old in time. That's a big win for her. But now Ivanka Trump's lawyers are arguing, well, she's not a defendant. She shouldn't have to testify. She's appealing that now. I think she's going to lose that appeal because being a defendant is different than being a witness. The question as to whether Ivanka Trump has to be a witness is, does she have relevant information here? The AG's office alleges that Ivanka Trump was involved in a transaction involving one of Donald Trump's hotels in Washington, D.C., and they say she has relevant information. So I believe she's going to lose her appeal, and I believe she will be made to take the stand and testify. So there is this former Morgan Stanley executive who testified today that back when Trump was trying to buy the Buffalo Bills football team, he sent a letter claiming that his net worth was $8 billion. And then in a meeting with the Buffalo Bills management, Trump handed out a Forbes article of, a, of the top paid entertainers to, to back up that claim. Does this sort of testimony bolster what the prosecutors are alleging? It does, Jake. That's the heart of this case, that the inflations of value here were not 10%, 20%. We're not a matter of judgment, but we're so over the top that they cannot be defended, that they classify as fraud. And using a Forbes magazine or any magazine article to justify your net worth does not cut it in a court case. Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, thanks, the Jake. House returns from recess tomorrow with a load on its plate, but the first order of business, some capital punishment, I'll explain next. Expect a busy day on Capitol Hill tomorrow when the House of Representatives returns to business, but not with votes to help make America safer or to prevent a government shutdown. There is expected to be a trifecta of censure and expulsion resolutions brought to the floor for the second time. The House will consider expelling indicted Republican Congressman George Santos. There's also the censure resolution against another Republican, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, to, to condemn her for alleged hate speech and posts. 
And then there is the one against Democrat Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman of Michigan, introduced by Marjorie Taylor Greene to try to censure Tlaib for remarks about Israel and her support for an anti-Israel protest. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip starts now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.